Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have one guest. Our guest is Cheta. Cheta is a partner at SBM Intelligence. SBM Intelligence are one of Nigeria's leading political and economics consultancies. Now we're going to be discussing four topics today. First of all, will be the removal of the fuel subsidy by the Bolatinibu administration. Secondly, we'll discuss the suspension of Nigeria's central bank governor. That's uh, Emirfili, I believe that Godwin Emirfili. Thirdly, we'll discuss Bolatinibu's appointments of a secretary to the government of the federation and a chief of staff. And then finally, we'll discuss the controversy surrounding the Air Nigeria, which is supposed to be Nigeria's national carrier. So on to the first topic, the fuel subsidy. Phoenix, many people have described you as one of those Bretton Woods neoliberal types who's always wanting to privatize everything privatizable. So are you happy that the fuel subsidy has now been removed? Does this give Bolatinubu uh, uh, an applause in your books, Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that he's, because the way he has presented, well, before I forget my manners, um, hi, uh, Michael, and hi, Cheta, thanks for joining us. Hello, listeners, uh, glad to be back, and sorry for the break in transmission from us. Um, I, I, I I think the way transmission. You were here last week now. Were we here last week? No, we were not. Yes, now with uh, Lemon now on Oja. Order. Can, can, can we, the, the listeners can't remember we're not here. So let's, let's not remind no, you. No, you were here last week. I'm reminded <laughs> because it's, this, it's, exactly, this brings exactly. into. It brings, it brings into question the credibility of your analysis if you're already having Alzheimer's no, at this no, very no, young no, age. No, Cheta, you're just confessing that you listened to our podcast one week late because you were not here last <laughs> <time>. <laughs> so, No, no, no. no, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> Let's continue. <laughs> I think, I think to, to Michael's question, um, the way, the way Tinubu has presented it, he has presented it as something like a fait accompli in the sense that he's saying, look, I inherited this situation. There's no money in the budget. We can't do it. So yes, it is gone. So I may be hesitant to applaud him until I see him actually leave it out in the sense that he's not making it like this was my policy decision and so I'm implementing it. He's making it like, yes, it was already on the table and, and I agree with it and so I will, I will go along with it. But he, he needs to prove it in the sense that we need to be sure and remember that subsidy was, in, was budgeted for until end of June. So let's see if he holds you know, his ground and we see it all the way through to the end, we actually see that subsidy is gone. So on the face of it, you know, the mere fact that that he he made that statement, the mere fact that, I mean, he's, he's what now? Um, three, three weeks, two weeks, whatever it is into office, he hasn't recanted. Yeah, I mean, I give him small props. I think it was, it, it has always been low hanging fruit 
the fact that Buhari wasn't intelligent enough to have, you know, done this kind of thing very early on when he had all the goodwill um, to see it in a good do it is good. But I think the manner in which he has done it, again, to my point about him trying to say, look, I inherited it, this is what, what I was given and blah, blah, blah. And the abruptness of it is what might put him into trouble because while he did inherit it, he could have, he could have, you know, bought himself some time in the sense of, you know, show the things that you are doing to address the inevitable um, challenges that will be faced by people. Now, make no mistake about it. I am a fervent, fervent, fervent supporter of subsidy removal. I have been so since before the nonsense that was done in 2012 January. So this is music to my ears. But the problem I have is him not doing something institutional, him not having a set of plans that he immediately then is rolling out to make people know that, look, this, this thing is not going to happen. I mean, I think back to all of the work that was done under GEJ with, I'm not saying that they should be going out and doing town halls and having conversations. I'm saying all of the things that they showed that they were going to roll out, they show up, they do all of those kind of things that were supposed to alleviate what inevitably was going to be a rise in costs and inflation and all of that. I, I don't see that coming through. And so with that not happening, you run into the issue of it being, did you really have a plan for this? You knew already that this was already going to be a major policy issue for you. You jumped on the bandwagon, but what really is your plan? How do you intend to make sure that this doesn't become a major issue? So, um, so the jury is still out. As long as he holds position, that's good. But I mean, there needs to be more to it than simply making a speech um, on this issue. Thank you, Phoenix. I just need to get some clarification and some further points because I've seen a few articles where people have said subsidy removal is actually a full deregulation where you therefore allow market forces determine the price and anybody should be allowed to import fuel as they please. And they seem to be suggesting that that is not exactly what Bolatinibu has done. So are you saying, is the analysis correct or wrong? No, but I, I think it's I think it's a it's a strange analysis because we've always had deregulation. The issue we had was because they because subsidy became entrenched under Buhari. What then happened was that people just stopped importing. It, it made no economic sense to anybody. If everybody remembers back in 2015, they were owing marketers, and this guy refused to pay for like six plus months, which was part of why we had significant. NPLs, I mean, non-performing loans on the books of banks, because all these oil companies, all marketing companies that had that had been, you know, borrowing to bring in fuel, who had brought in fuel, were not being paid. So people simply stopped importing. Nobody has ever said that you can't import fuel since since Obasanjo days. I mean, the thing had been deregulated, and any oil marketer can go out and bring fuel. But because it became a difficult situation. It became only an NPC that was bringing in fuel into the country using their ESDP, their swap mechanism to, to do so. So if you remove subsidy, what it means is that people are now 
incentivized to go back to importing because now they can import and be sure that they can sell their products at the market price without anybody forcing them to sell at a particular price and then telling them they will give them the shortfall. So, I mean, for me, there's no need for the analysis. It's, there's no law that prescribes people from, from importing petrol. It's just a question of, you know, the market conditions. And so if it's not for the market conditions, then there should be no issue. But it's not what is happening now, Phoenix, because at the moment, from the announcements, it seems the federal government announced the new prices of fuel. So if, if you're saying subsidies got and is deregulated, the government should not be announcing prices. People should be selling at the prices they want. Isn't that correct? Well, you can, you can, let me put it this way. You can, you can have a liberalized um, sector, but still set a price band because you believe that this is a, a commodity that you want to control. But the question then becomes how you set the price band. So yes, it's not deregulation to the extent that with the free market entry, you can set prices that you like, but it is a liberalized sector to the extent that anybody can play in that market, anybody can import fuel, but the, the government says, this is the price band that you have and the price band factors in the, the, the true cost of the product, no subsidy and allows for uh, meaningful uh, price uh, uh, recovery, um, cost recovery and, and profits by the, by the players. And this is what we had, I mean, for a, for a period of time, if I remember between, between the end of uh, OBJ's time and-, and, uh, and, and, uh, and Can I interrupt uh, there very briefly, the please? So yes, it's not deregulation to the extent yep. where there's still price setting, but it's a liberalized market that anybody can. Can I interrupt very briefly because I think it's important to make um to make a clarification on this particular point. Um, it's a bit disingenuous for petrol marketers, and it's them, especially coming from the auspices of MoMA and Major Marketers Association of Nigeria, that um, the NMPC set prices for them. No, what's really happened is that the NMPC sets prices for its own stations. Um, so when marketers claim that the NMPC set prices for them, that's not exactly accurate. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a lie. Um, what I would prefer to be um, to be a bit nice to them and say that maybe they are so used to taking that cue from the NMPC that they are still involuntarily doing it. But what the NMPC did really and is that they set prices for their own petrol stations. Sorry to interrupts. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think you can't blame them. If the NMPC is set, we know that the NMPC was setting the prices on the basis of official FX rates. If they don't have access to official FX rates, they can't compete now. So, so they, I mean, we can't say NMPC set price for its own stations and, and, and think that that's not going to have an impact on the marketplace. I mean, of course, naturally, if NMPC is setting price at 400 naira, and because I need to go and get FX at a higher rate, I have to sell at 600 naira. I mean, there's a problem. So, uh, given that, given that where, where it's supposedly in a free I'm market. Gonna, I'm going to come to you, but let, let me finish, Phoenix. Okay, we'll sorry. You know that I like interrupting you a lot, so. Yeah. <laughs> no, Michael, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, I was going to come to you on, 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 on this issue, Cheta. So, Phoenix has raised the interesting point about the FX rates and how that determines the price of fuel. So, you mean this new, maybe you might know more, Cheta, but this, these new prices they've suggested, about 500 baht per litre, does that factor in the, the 
black market price of the dollar versus the naira, or is this the it, official? It, um, it's it's closer it's closer to the official, but um, and we'll get we'll probably touch on that by the time we're talking about MFLS MFLS um, uh, away from office. Um, the true price of petrol should be approximately 958 naira per liter or something thereabouts and my own argument is that if nmpc is going to be selling at official rate and bringing it at around 500 and marketers begin to sell somewhere closer to the true price um over time you'll find that there will be there will be queues at nmpc stations it will not be a sustainable situation and um given that um we have um uh, the, the 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 forex thing has still not gone away. Um, I think that eventually the, the whole thing will stabilize. Like Phoenix, uh, I'm a, I'm a believer in market forces. I believe that ultimately there will be a correction. Um, I think that it's important to put some numbers to some of these things too, so that people will understand why the subsidy had to go as painful as um, as what we are going through. Um, in terms of uh, uh, higher prices, um, not having, not being able to put on our generator all nights um, anymore, um, because of you are now calculating the price oh, of oil. Sorry, sorry, then, to that, sorry to that cut you there, because I, I need to pin this point down, and then we can build on. So, if you're saying the NMPC is still pricing fuel on the basis of the artificial exchange rate between the naira and dollar yes they have access to that then there is still a subsidy then that's correct there's still a subsidy because it's still not the market rate isn't that correct yeah so the so the nigerian government subsidizes at a very base level the nigerian government subsidizes two things or has always subsidized two things the price of fx and the, the price of petrol mm, there are other things that that it also subsidizes for example electricity now what happens is that those subsidies have to go because they end up creating arbitrage. So in petrol, for example, um, uh, we, of course, the, the arbitrage created in FX is very is blindingly clear to all, to all. But in petrol, for example, we have a situation where as of last year, the, the average, uh, the price of petrol in Nigeria, if you convert it to US dollars, was 40 cents to the, uh, per liter. While in, in Benin Republic next door, it was 95 cents per liter. In Niger, it was 97 cents per liter. In Chad, it was 89 cents per liter. And in Cameroon, it was $1.09 per liter. So what used to happen is that if you go to any of these countries, if you went to any of these countries, you will not be able to buy, uh, you, will, you will not see people buying petrol in petrol stations. Instead, the people preferred to buy on the roadside because what used to happen is that nigerians smart alec nigerians would buy petrol in quantity in nigeria and then export it to those countries and be able to um to sell so i mean it's it's simple business if i can buy at 40 cents in nigeria enough quantity of petrol and then take it to kotonu and instead of selling at the 95 cents per liter that they sell at the pump there i sell at 60 cents i still make a profit from my nigeria operation but I'm able to undercut the markets in Kotonu. So by the time you consider that global outlook, that there are still places that we're subsidizing one thing. We just call it a foil subsidy. President Tinubu just announced that, oh, the foil subsidy is gone. But they haven't removed the, the, um, the dollar subsidy. Now, remember that the Daily Trust reported that, oh, the CBN had quietly devalued the Naira. Then the CBN issued a statement saying it had not. That arbitrage is still there. And the NMPC is one of the organizations that can get dollars at the preferential rates. 
But my argument ultimately is that that is going to um that is over time that is going to uh, to be removed as realities come into um into play um the real question mark regarding this whole subsidy business is an issue that was there in 2011 2012 that has still not gone away which is whether the government can be trusted to use the savings from the removal to do uh, to whether it can be trusted to channel those savings properly. Also, there's another thing that is um, that is uh, um, uh, questionable in the whole thing, which is uh, which um, uh, Phoenix alluded to earlier, which is that the manner and the abruptness in which it was removed. So you see, perhaps because there are some people who argue that it is best for Nigeria to have gone cold stocky. With um, with it, given the given the fact that their vested interests were clearly against it, I don't I don't necessarily agree because we are seeing the damage that that cold turkey kind of treatment has done um, in terms of uh, the in terms of people's daily lives and people's routine, um, and then given the heat that we are that we are facing that. So I talked about the fact that. Now we are now we are. Um, I am having to be very careful about how we turn on generators because petrol is petrol is no longer as cheap as it used to be. So I think, um, and this is me going on a tangent. I think that one good thing that may come out of um, of more expensive petrol in Nigeria is that people will begin to demand more from the government because you can't just start selling this thing at such a high price to us and then expect that we will just take it and you are not doing your own bits. One of the things that needs to uh, to go is cutting the size of governments. It's one of the things that needs to be done and needs to be done very, very soon. Thank you, Cheta. So, in effect, there is still a fuel subsidy. So, it might not be the federal government subsidizing the the, the, the price, but with the with the FX subsidy, we're still subsidizing fuel. And this yes, is the there are so many things that we are still subsidizing as long as the FX subsidy is still there. So, for example, yes. FAC Federal Allocations Committee, it is still subsidized in a way. Um, um, there, there are still opportunities for arbitrage. So that also has to go. We need to start selling the naira or selling dollars or whatever, however we want to call it, at market rates. Okay. Thank you for this. Cheta. So let me come to Phoenix. Phoenix, one of our wealthy listeners, I was talking to this person over the weekend. He knows who he is. He's probably going to be listening to this podcast as well. One of our wealthy listeners, he drives a very expensive Mercedes in Lagos, in Ikoi. And he was telling me how with this new price, the cost of fuel per week for him has increased by 30,000 naira. And he explained how over the weekend, as he was driving towards the expensive restaurants in Via Nikoi, he could see that the streets were empty and people weren't coming out as before. So the question, Phoenix, is I know some would say it makes economic sense to remove the subsidy, but do you think much thought has been given to the impact it will have on ordinary Nigerians? Because yes, our listener who drives a Mercedes is, is, is very wealthy, so he can afford the, the cost increase. The way you think about 
people who work in restaurants or people who own establishments whose various bills will have to be increased. Are we are we facing a crisis, Phoenix? I, th I think um, I think that's the point I was trying to make about you know you don't you don't just do this, which again I reiterate it needed to be done, without having a a way to address some of these issues, and I've heard a lot of people prefer different things which I think make sense. People have talked about um, conditional cash transfers. People have talked about you know easing the the specific areas where you know that typically there will be issues, transportation, you know, things like that. So yes, I mean, there is potentially an issue in the sense that you can't have, you know, costs rise so dramatically um, amid all of the other pain that we see that, you know, the most vulnerable are facing and not expect that this will precipitate some crisis. We still know that our unemployment is at, you know, a very high level. We still know that um, the economy is 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 in dire straits. Inflation is above twenty two percent now. So, so yes, there is a lot of um, challenge that we've, that that is being pushed onto onto people, and that's where a government needs to step in and do something um, to to help people. And this is a this is an APC, this is a government from APC. We've seen them use government resources to claim that they were helping people in the name of trader money and all those all the market money and all those stupid things that they were saying they were doing. They need to leverage those, that same capability and go out and, and help people. And as they are doing that, they need to also be making sure that they are showing that they are cutting down costs. That that they are that they are you know but we but we said this thing pre-election that this this is not the kind this candidate this guy who is now ostensibly sworn in as president is not the type of person to run a small government is not the type of person to run a government short of patronage and so that's where the, the conflict is going to happen so yes there is going to be I mean there, there is there is enough uh, fuel to create a crisis the question remains. I mean, how much more can Nigerians take, and and what will really precipitate that? You know, that final, you know, breaking of the camel's back, and people will just be like, "Look, we're done," you know. But I think it's still it's still a bit. I mean, we are seeing some crackling of 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 the kindling, but you know, that real thing that will just make everything you know combust. We're waiting to see what pushes people over the edge. Thank you, Phoenix. So, Chacha, building on what Phoenix has said, so what specific things or what specific policies would you put in place to ensure that this subsidy removal, whenever it fully happens, because there, there will probably eventually have to be something done, done about the FX rates. That's assuming Bolatini will decide to do something about it. But even with this current price hike, what, what, what would your proposed approach be Chacha? well the first thing would, would have to be something about uh, there has to be a lot of perception management um so i would i'm going i'm going to uh, uh concur with that on something here um because it's going to be something that will be very difficult for this particular government to do um which is there will be a need for them to be visibly seen 
So we're cutting the size of government, cutting the size and cost of government. Uh, that that one that one will hurt them. I say it's, it's going to be it's going to be very tough for them to do. But it has to be seen. You can't be telling people to tighten their belts, um, and then and then your own belt is not just being loosened, but being act actively thrown away. Um, that's one. Number two, there will have to be a serious, um, uh, as in, and when I say serious, I mean proper, I hate to use the word palliative, so that's why I paused. I was trying to find another word, but I couldn't find it, uh, and I'm going to blame people like uh, uh, Phoenix for making sure that that word sticks stuck in our heads during the Jonathan era. There, there has to be, as in, people need to see palliatives going to the most vulnerable in society, things that will help ease the pressure. And then there has to be proper investment. For me personally, the first thing that you, you want to really invest in really is proper transport infrastructure not this audio transport infrastructure that uh, that uh, that we also that's uh, happened during the buhari era um re uh, rehabilitating old lines that were there and they were not even working well and then failing to secure them so that people got kidnapped on the trains you need proper infrastructure for transportation so that people will know that okay if i don't have the option of using the car or if the car is too expensive i have this alternative that i can use i think that's where that's that's where we we have to start from um right now it is very very um difficult so for example for me to travel from lagos where i live to onicha is still painful um a, a ticket nowadays is in excess a return ticket nowadays is in excess of a hundred thousand naira um, well in excess of a hundred thousand naira um and god is good last week um uh, was thirty two thousand naira from uh, from jibu to to onicha head bridge i mean this is a this is a, a journey that's once upon a time used to be five thousand six hundred naira so when you don't have alternatives in place you are asking people to revolt at a particular point in time um unfortunately i don't see much by uh, by way of um, uh, um, uh, uh, preparing people's minds. Instead, as uh, as uh, Ilimona pointed out in in the show two weeks ago, apologies, Phoenix. I have checked, and yes, it was indeed two weeks ago. As Ilimona pointed out two weeks ago, um, the some of the media appointments that have been made are appointments made in preparation for a combative style of uh, of governments of government communications that is going to be that will be problematic from the get-go we can we can i can tell you that so some of these things is uh it's just a case of me with the observe thank you very much cheta we now need to move on to our next topic which is the announcement by the nigerian government that the governor of our central bank Godwin Emifile has been suspended. Phoenix, is this good news, bad news, or are you indifferent? Michael, it's excellent news. Excellent news. In fact, I, I think the day I heard about it, I poured myself a, an 18-year-old um, um, single malt um, to to celebrate it. 
of course. Is, is, is it the Big same voice? Is it the Big same voice? Whiskey? <laughs> is it the same whiskey that Nielsen Wike was drinking? Because Wike also. Uh, no, no, I don't have. I beg, I beg, I beg. I've sent my account. I've sent my account details in the chats. So, uh, those are phones that still end naira. We need, we need, we need your help, please. I don't have, I don't have Wike's power. I beg. You see me? I, I stayed in my lane. Just simple eighteen year old. That's all. <laughs> but, but yes, excellent days. Uh, I mean, and not only that. I mean, uh, suspension. Yes, and and to those who say. I mean, um, CBN is to be independent. Again, I, I tell them I'm a firm believer in that. But just as I was okay with what's his name, um, Sanusi being suspended, pending the investigation that was going on, I'm, I'm okay with him also being suspended, pending the... I mean, even in this case, there's more to go on for the suspension. Nobody should be above the above the above the law. You're not being he's not being removed. That's what the law says. You cannot remove him without blah blah blah. But it doesn't mean that you can't ask him to step aside pending the pending an investigation. And I mean, there's just too much that that the guy has done. For me, I mean, nothing more egregious than the shadow candidacy that he was trying to do. Uh, you know, to become president of Nigeria. Then I mean all the as far as I'm concerned, the economic crimes in my in my eyes, all of the stuff that he was doing with uh, with um, FX rate with anchor bonus, just name it. This guy was a pox on 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 the institution that is the central bank, and I could not wait for him to be removed. It was a travesty that the worst central bank governor that we've had in my living memory, and don't forget we've had Paul Obuma. I mean, got a second term. You know, just think about it. We, we, we had, we had um, Joseph Sanusi, we had Subudu, we had, you know, SLS. This is the guy that gets a second term. So for me, absolutely, it was great news that he's been removed. I, I, I watch with caution at the news that he's been arrested. Because that one is the one that is not clear to me in the sense that what case are they making? What I mean, they, they need to come clean and not turn this into some political witch hunt. Um, and in any case, if you are going to be arresting him, I hope you are also planning to arrest, uh, what's his name, Buari as well. Because we know that every single time that we were attacking him, if Buari will come out and say, he, yes, he, he, he owned the economic decisions or whatever choices that the central bank government was making. So just to answer your question, yes, it's great news that he's been removed. There needs to be consequences in this country for bad for bad performance. Thank you, Phoenix. Let me come to Cheta to build on this issue. So Cheta Phoenix says he's happy, he was happy, he drank some, I think he said 200 year whiskey or whatever year old whiskey he said he drank in celebration. But he also uh, mentioned uh, while we're on that, please don't forget my account number is in your box, Phoenix. Please, <laughs> yes. So, I still, I still earn in Naira. Hmm? And then he also mentioned that, but every time Emirfile announced the policy, Buhari would, would spring up and say, Yes, this, this policy is his initiative. And then the follow up question is a number of people have commentators have raised this point that. Emir Fili was basically implementing the policy of the APC government. Vice President Oshibanjo, Oshibanjo supported it. 
Bola Tinubu himself campaigned for this APC government on two terms and came to office saying he will continue where Buhari stopped. So the question people are asking is, what are you investigating? Everything he did was your policy and all of you benefited from it. So can you expand further, Chetan? Uh, maybe you might know. What, what, is that merit to what they are saying as to what are we investigating? And wasn't this the APC policy? Well, Iron is, um, is a case of uh, when the man who had bullion vans come, to, come into his house has arrested the man who approved the bullion vans coming into his house. That's um, a very good case of irony. That's essentially what has happened. And that's what you've described in, um, in a nutshell. But I think it's important for us to point out something, that the APC is not a political party. The APC is a special purpose vehicle, which was put together to remove the PDP back in 2014. So that means that there were different, um, uh, there are different hymn sheets that they sing from in the APC. And what's really happened over the last eight years was the fact was um was that the less dominant part of the APC at the time was playing along in order to uh, biding their time, but and this is probably one of the more insidious parts of this going forward, is the fact that Emefiele and his deservedly getting what is coming to him is a scapegoat because as Phoenix has rightly pointed out. Everything that Emefiele did over the last eight years was approved, sanctioned, and in accordance with the wishes of Muhammad Buhari. So you don't just harass Emefiele and then ignore Buhari. Now let us look at the um, the uh, trajectory of uh, Godwin Ifan Yukechuku Emefiele. He started his career as a lecturer at University of Nigeria Onsuka and then University of Port Harcourt before moving to Vodafone as of the period that uh, Jim Ovia, who is uh, his townsman, was uh, had significant interest in Vodafone and then moving over to Zenith. His career was, um, was basically one thing that's dogged him throughout his career was that he was a yes man to all of the people who um, who were his bosses. So if we remember, he was appointed to CBN governor and there were rumors, it's important to use the word rumors, that um, Jimovia paid heavily. Um, I think the sum of 4 billion Naira was mentioned for him to become CBN governor. Whether that is true is another matter entirely, but the fact that those kind of rumors surfaced says a lot, and nothing was done to swatch those rumors aside. This same Emefile, when he became CBN governor, pursued a policy of trying to converge the Naira rates. Then suddenly, about a year after he came into office, the government changed. And we got the new Buhari government that was statist and was obsessed with control. And suddenly the tune, the hymn sheets that Emefiele was singing from changed. And that, that singular fact, the Emefiele yes manism, ensured that he became the first CBN governor since Abdul Qadir Ahmed, who served from 1982 to 1993, he became the first one to be given a second term. 
remember that since Abdul Kadir Ahmed, there has been this unspoken um, agreement of sorts that the CBN governorship will rotate every five years between the North and the South. So after Ahmed left in 93, Paul Uguma came in, then uh, Joseph Sanusi replaced him, then Charles Soludo replaced Sanusi, then Sanusi Lamido Sanusi replaced Charles Soludo before Emefile came in. That unspoken arrangement was sort of broken. Emefile was given, was renewed. But crucially, it is important again to point out that everything he did was at the behest of his superiors or the people that he considered his superiors. Buhari, Mamandara, Isa Funtua. Now, Emefile's real legacy, his real lasting damaging legacy as far as i'm concerned it's not the arbitrage that occurs during his tenure the arbitrage is a feature and not a bug in nigeria's economic design neither is it the bad economic policy bad economic policy bad monetary policy can happen to with any central bank um i would go so far as to say that um is it gavin williamson or gavin williams i forget the name but it had the william inside who was the predecessor to paul volcker at the u.s federal reserve was a bad central banker so you will get bad central bankers that happens emifilis key legacy was in displaying just how powerful the central bank can be you see the central bank is supposed to be subtle it has power to do and undo, but that power is, supposed, is not meant to be used as a whip. It's a subtle kind of power, and it's a kind of get-out-of-the-way kind of power. So the, in my view, in my opinion, the best central banker or one of the best central bankers ever would be Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan, in, does he, who was the chairman of the U.S. Reserve under five presidents, um, he, succeed, he, succeed, he was one of uh, Paul Volcker's successors. Now, Alan Greenspan, in the entirety of, I think it was 26 years that he was chairman of U.S. Federal Reserve, he gave whether it was four or five interviews in that period. I think he, he knew that his position was a position of real power. So it is best to shy away from the limelight. Emefele, on the other hand, used his position, got the CBN directly involved in the economy, as in so directly, and then went to where went to politicize the position. Aside from trying to run from pres for president, he actually um, became he became a regulatory hammer, as it were. But we're going to ask you to come outside now if you continue this line of. Uh... <laughs> uh, so so yeah, um, well, uh, in short, one of the best things that happened after uh, Amy Felix's uh, uh, removal. Was this tweet by um, Babuki <laughs> FX um, where he quoted the Bible verse Exodus as saying, The Lord will fight for you. And he quoted it with that <laughs> and he feel it, uh, Come outside, let us fight. Because the Lord has fought for him. Uh, but going back to um, this, Emifilis' real legacy, which is the very damaging legacy, is the overt politicization of the CBN governorship. Because people have now seen how powerful that can be. So it is going to be something that has become an extra layer of instability in Nigeria's political economy. It's going to take some time for us to walk back from that. Whoever Tinubu will appoint, there, there's going to be an almighty scramble. to be. There's going to be serious lobbying to, um, to, for Tinubu to appoint 
a, a new successor. People are going to make all sorts of demands. Deals will be done. So it's, it's going to make you question what will the new CBN governor do that will compromise the economy because of whatever deal was made in order to get him into uh, office. Finally, before I drop the mic brief, uh, for this period, on the surface, the moves that Tinubu has made coming in appear to be good. He's doing it from a position where he knows that he doesn't have any choice. He doesn't have the goodwill, so let me just do them anyway. How? I mean, God knows I wanted the subsidy gone. God knows I wanted the Mayfield gone. But I am very uncomfortable with this with immediate effects kind of attitude. It has never done, it has never turned out well for Nigeria, ever. Thank you, Chacha. Let me come to Phoenix. Phoenix, an interim governor has been appointed. I think he's one of the deputy governors, but goes by the name of Fola Shonubi. Looking at his profile, he seems to have done some, he used to be, his background was engineering, and then he did a bit of tech work. It was executive director for operations and IT in Echo Bank. So the question is, and I saw one of those tech influencers celebrating his interim appointment. So first of all, do you think he's qualified to hold this role? Secondly, do you think this is going to be a permanent thing? He's going to be elevated there? Or do you think somebody else is going to take the place, Phoenix? To your second question, I would expect that somebody else would take his place. Um, I would expect that somebody else would take his place. Unless I'm misleading the, the situation, um, I expect Tinubu to appoint somebody who's 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 been a, a close associate or somebody who, who has such a high pedigree that will give him a sheen of uh, respectability. Um, better hit the nail on the head by saying that he doesn't have the goodwill, he doesn't have the legitimacy. The central bank is one area where, you know, it reached his nadir with Buhari. So going the other ex extreme, by appointing somebody with, with significant pedigree who would not, who would be, you know, add some shame to it, would be a good and a wise political choice. So I, I expect, looking at it from that perspective, that he would, he would put somebody else. To your first question around qualifications, I, I always answer that in a qualified manner, even though I, I Again, it's all part of this politicization and, and so, sorry if I use this word, bastardization of, of, of the central bank. To me, if you're, a, if you're a deputy governor, you're a heartbeat away from, from the governorship of the central bank. In, in quotes, I expect that people who are appointed to the deputy governorship fully in line with the central bank act. In terms of what's specified in the act as to what you must be able to do, you should be able to move into governorship. But we've also seen that there have been political appointments, there have been appointments that have not been based on capability that is required. And so for me, that creates a challenge. When I look at him, when I look at his background, I mean, his career experience, what he's done, I would not put him in the position of a central bank governor. I firmly believe that we need somebody with a strong macroeconomic uh, background, somebody 
who's a thought leader in that space, somebody with proven capability in that space, somebody who um, can turn things around and revert the central bank based on intellectual rigor, based on clear strategic vision to its original mandate. The primary mandate of the central bank is price stability. Go back and focus on your job. Financial stability, go back and focus on your job. That, that you need a central banker who comes in knowing that, look, this, this is about policy making. This is about strategic direction. This is about signaling. This is not about pandering or, or, or becoming a market player or interventionism and all the nonsense that they've been doing or filling the gap. Yes, we know that the fiscal side was, was non-existent at best, woefully incompetent, if you really want to be truthful. And so there was some part of the central bank leaning in to do what it should not have done to, to deleterious effect. But we need a proven central banker who is an economist, not just an economist, but a proven um, macroeconomist with of repute of, of the right intellectual heft, who can come in and make sure that we get the bank uh, you know, structured in the right way. Somebody with the right, you know, um, um, uh, personal integrity and personal credibility that would that would refuse to be unduly influenced. One of the one of the things that upset me the most about the Buhari era, era was this idea of people who you thought had um, enough of a personal pedigree, but who could not resign or step away, even though they knew that this was bad market. I mean, it, it, it just I I I. I it bred an understanding in Nigerians, especially young Nigerians, as though oh my, his hands were tied. The number one culprit, obviously, was Yemi Oshibaju. You know, people try to spin all sorts of tales. We cannot afford to have that kind of person in Central Bank. If they are asking you to do nonsense work, step away and let us all know what that they're asking you to do nonsense work. That's the kind of caliber. So I, when I look at Shonubi, he just doesn't have the macroeconomic and those credentials that I hold dear. Um, and so I, I would not I put him in the role. Thank you, Phoenix. So based on your expectations of what a CBN governor is, are you saying you'd prefer maybe an academic economist, like someone from maybe like a university who's focused on economic research, as opposed to the recent trend of bringing the CEO or senior executive from a commercial bank to run the central bank, which would be your preference? I would never, I mean, for me, it will not be a commercial banker. And that's not to say I will not go into banking. I'll go into banking and look at people who have done um, creditably well in economic research, you know, chief economists of banks that are of, of that Ilk, you know, banks that value economic research that that not not people that just have it just to burnish their credentials, risk people, people who have done it again at a high level that can come in and and institutionalize that kind of capability. Yes, I would be more open to going with with, with an academic, but not just any type of academic. It has to be somebody who stepped out of the classroom, who's worked. You know, with the likes of you know, with international uh, multilateral organizations, who's been picked, you know, to consult on major projects, who's had a say, you know, at national, subnational, international level, 
So I'm not just going into university and saying, oh, because you're a professor of economics, come and be central bank governor. No, you have to have been in both areas. You've been an academic of proven, you know, intellectual heft. You've, you, you know, you've, you have your own thoughts and we know what your thinking is. But we've also seen you veer into public space more, more importantly and you know brought some of that thinking to bear that would be for me a, a more um favored route and but certainly I, I mean if i could make the law myself no no commercial bank i would ever smell that job thank you phoenix let me uh, go to if check I, if i may okay but before you before you ask i want to build on what um Okay. What uh, Dapo has yeah. just said. Um, two minutes. Don't worry, it's less than two minutes. So if you go, tr if you go um, through the CBN governors that we've ever had, um, the worst CBN governors, in my view, were um, were, uh, so Paul Oguma and uh, Godwin Emifili were without a doubt the worst. I think that both uh, Joseph Sanusi and Sanusi Lamidu Sanusi were, um, were so Joseph Sanusi was colorless. Um, Sanusi, Lamido Sanusi was an activist CBN governor, which is not which is not a good thing. These are the CBN governors that we've that we've had who were commercial bankers. Paul Oguma was uh, was uh, used to be at Union Bank. Um, Joseph Sanusi at First Bank. Sanusi Lamido Sanusi First Bank, and then Gordon Emifili from Zenith Bank. I think that bringing in commercial bankers actually does more damage to the CBN. I think that the best CBN governor that we've had was uh, was uh, Charles Soludo. Um, and this, I, I don't like his politics afterwards, but I think he was the best. And his trajectory, he was an academic. When uh, Phoenix was saying, oh, this is it, this he was reading out his wish lists of who he wants to be CBN governor, the kind of person. It was almost like he was going back to say, let us bring Soludo back. 100%. Now, which brings <laughs> us, which brings us back to, to something. And this is probably something that will be that will be a that is a key risk factor in the coming few months um, when Tinubu wants to appoint a new CBN governor. Given Tinubu's proclivities, it is likely that he would want to appoint a Southwesterner. That's going to cause a problem with the North. Again, I talked about that unspoken um, alternating arrangements. There is a Northerner who actually has the kind of um, credentials that Phoenix was. Um, uh, reading out in his wish lists is a guy called Mansur Mukhtar. Um, he's currently with the Islamic Development Bank. He would be a good CBN governor, in my view. Um, because I'm one who uh, I believe that we need stability in Nigeria. So our unspoken arrangements in terms of rotation, giving everybody a sense of belonging, is very important. So I would be I would be firmly on the side of give the appoint a Northerner to be the next CBN governor. And if I were to make that decision, if if by some chance Tinubu is to pick the phone and call me, I would not think twice before before recommending Mansur Mukta, given Phoenix's wish list. I think I think I think Mukta is a is a good is a good uh, a, a good choice indeed. And just a quick point. People forget that Joseph Sanusi had had a distinguished career as a central banker first before he, he went into commercial banking with First Bank. So, the, so it was different. He wasn't somebody who was just a commercial banker all of his career. That's all he knows, you know. And then um, SLS, even with all the issues I have with him, was more importantly a risk person. 
before he became CEO of First Bank. So you see, when I was talking about it, I was saying that these are the kinds of, you know, even within banking, I will be very selective of the areas I'll go. People traditionally go think, oh, let me pick the CEO of a, a top performing bank. Let me pick CEO. No, you have to look at their capabilities and their careers. What have they done? Skill sets. That's Skill what set. you're looking for. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Because uh, I remember Mansur Mukta, I'm sure he used to be a minister on the yard, uh, yard, I think it was finance minister. But anyway, final question to you, Chata, and it uh, requires literally a one-minute response. From your, based on your own knowledge from the ground, who are the people Bolatinibu is considering? Do you have any names of anybody you think are on his list to be the next CBN governor? Um, the name that everybody uh, keeps calling is uh, is Wale Ejun. Um but um, uh, Cardoso, uh, Yemi Cardoso is also somebody that people have been calling. Then um, there's, uh, um, is it Koko Onadili who has also been, who has also been mentioned. Um, so my own personal worry is that all of the people that have been mentioned so far from the Southwest. All of these men I know are very, very capable. They all are capable. I'm not going to take it away from him. Wale Ejun provide the most capable of them. Um, Koko Nadeli also very capable. But I, I, I personally think that it should go, it should, it should go um, north of the Niger at this point in time. Thank you, Chacha. So now, because of time, we need to move on to our next topic, which is... Bolatinibu's appointment of a chief of staff and a secretary to the government of the federation. The new chief of staff is the current speaker of the House of Representatives, Femi Tajabi Amila. And the new secretary to the government is a man by the name of George Akume, who was a former governor of Benue State and former senator. So first of all, to Phoenix, are you pleased? Are these men, do you think these men are qualified to be Chief of Staff and Secretary of the Government, and do you have any concerns so far, Phoenix? There's nothing, there's nothing about being pleased there. I mean, these are appointments that are the prerogative of the president um, and only serve to, you know, confirm the kind of person that he is. Um, these are political positions. These are, I mean, and he has, he has gone for you know, if they say people are, you know, professional politicians in the sense that people who who live and breathe politics, who understand the political terrain, and especially people who have, you know, more importantly, schemas. <laughs> more importantly, you know, someone like an Akume who has um, destroyed both the executive and legislative side. We also know that Badabi Amila, I mean, he's been, he's been, He's been in the National Assembly for two decades. So I, it just, for me, I do, when I saw when I saw the announcements, of course, they've been talking about the Bajabi Amila one for a while. I kept wondering why would he leave um, the speakership and, and move over? But he's been tied to uh, Tinubu for a long time. So I guess it's it's making sure that he proves his loyalty and, and you know, return the favor. Again, Akume, there's some relationship when he was kicked out of PDP and um, ACN in 2011 took him in, in their arms and Tinubu supported him. And, you know, so there's, there's history there. But more importantly for me, it just proves that Tinubu is first and foremost a political animal. 
he thinks politics. He thinks, how do I, you know, how do I continue to play this game? How do I continue to make sure that the pieces around me are what I need to go into battle? You know, and so that's, I mean, this is his kitchen cabinet. These are the people who work closely with him. And so for me, it, it just it just fit the bill in terms of what he would be looking for. And so this is not about Nigeria. I can't be bothered who's, who's chief of staff or SGF. What I want to see are the key policy positions and what he does with those. Thank you, Phoenix. Cheta, a number of people raised questions about the propriety of a current Speaker of the House becoming the Chief of Staff. And they also raised questions about his uh, legal troubles in the US when he was practicing law and accused of effectively stealing client funds, running to Nigeria for a few years after becoming House of Reps member, then deciding to go back and return the money and he was uh, suspended from the bar for uh, for quite a while. Does does do any of these things make you concerned, Cheta? Um, of course, it makes uh, it's 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 uh, the twenty five thousand dollar thing would make anybody concerned. Um, it, it's pre it's pretty much kind of the way the four hundred and sixty thousand dollar thing regarding Tinubu should make anybody concerned. Um, you need to have people of um, not necessarily. Um, I'm trying to find. I'm trying to uh, to pick my words very carefully um, uh, here. Um, you need to have people who are unassailable um, in certain positions. Um, when you have a first speaker of the house, and then um, uh, a, a now chief of staff who has that kind of that's he wants made away with client funds. It makes you it makes you wonder. Um, now, especially given that it happened in the West, um, in Nigeria, given what has become our culture, and I think this is a very unfortunate thing for me to say, but it is what it is. Um, we um, ethics is not one of the things is not one of our or ethics, at least from a Western perspective, is not one of our strong points. Um, so it's, he returned the money. That's the way Nigerians were reason. He returned the money now, so wahala no day. But the fact that he was, um, uh, that he was sentenced by the state of Georgia, um, uh, it's, it's problematic. Having said all of that, I would want to, um, buttress what, uh, Phoenix has said, um, Bajabi Amila's appointment was no surprise. He has been auditioning for that position very publicly. Um, to answer Phoenix's confusion as to why, there's almost no way, given Nigeria's current political arrangements, that he would have retained this the position of Speaker of the House of Representatives. So from the point of view of a Nigerian political animal, he would not want to go down to be to become a, a floor member of the house again. Um, if he had gone up to, into the Senate, it would have been a different conversation. So he wouldn't want to go down. So the next thing is to go into the chief of uh, being the chief of staff. Now, considering the 
health challenges that everybody knows that the president has. The chief of staff is going to be a very important and very powerful position. At many points, given the Byzantine nature of the Nigerian political landscape, it will be the chief of staff who will effectively be running the country. So that power is something that is very, very important to your average garden variety Nigerian political animal. Akume has deep pockets. He's a very experienced political operator from the north, from the north central. Remember that he was the first governor of Benue State and served for two terms. And his stewardship as governor of Benue was very, very lackluster, and that's been very generous to him. Um, he was one of those who started the habit of um, retiring from the governorship into the into the National Assembly. So his appointment can be spawned as trying to give something back to someone who helps. Remember that Tinubu surprisingly won Benue in the um, in the presidential election, and um, I've not seen too much by way of contesting that results. Um, uh, my people on the ground in Benue say that it was because that um, that Peter Obi was on track to win Benue, and then Otom, who was hated suddenly threw his lot in with Peter Obi at the last minute, and that uh, turned a lot of people off in the States. Um, so which helped Akume, who is perhaps the most significant person from Benue since David Mack. Now, the pair of Akume and uh, Bajabi Amila come with nationwide networks that their experience from the National Assembly has acquired them. Um, so this would be useful in Tinubu's efforts to have, um, because Tinubu is in, I, I think Tinubu is very aware. So it, it's also um, uh, uh, comes into the point that uh, Phoenix made earlier that Tinubu, first and foremost, is a political animal. He's very aware that he wouldn't have the kind of rubber stamp National Assembly that Buhari had in his second term. So having people like Bajabi Amila and Akume in, in his corner would help with the necessary bribes or whipping or whatever it is that you want to say to bring the National Assembly into line in terms of what he wants to achieve. And this fits into his reputation as uh, a very savvy dealmaker. So nothing surprising there. Um, it's again, another of the things that maybe we just observe because it's all going to be very, very interesting. Um, I think that's if the if the presidential election tribunal and the Supreme Court um, endorse Tinubu's continued stay as president, the next four years are going to be very, very interesting. Thank you, Treta. But you didn't comment on the question of whether a chief of staff should also be Speaker of the House, holding both positions. He's going to leave. He's going to leave. Um, he's, he's going to leave that uh, the office. He's going to leave the National Assembly. There will be a by-election. For, for that surrogate constituency. That's a given. Okay. Well, thank you. So we're going to go to our final topic. Uh, Phoenix, that's the Air Nigeria saga. It was launched, apparently launched a few weeks ago, but a number of exposés have come out alleging that actually this was what some Nigerians call an audio airline, i.e. there was actually no plane. They seem to have no office they they don't even have an air operating license. So can you talk us through what is happening, uh, Phoenix? Why, why all the conf conflicting news about this so-called national carrier? 
Abeg, before Phoenix starts, uh, let's go do something more important. There are two teams in Nigeria that I support, Bendel Insurance and Eimba. Eimba just won the league title, so let's celebrate that one. Uzobu, Uzobu, Eimba, Eimba. All right, carry on. Yes, congratulations to this Eimba team. Congrats, congrats to Eimba indeed. The elephant is still king of the jungle. Um, Nigeria Air. Yeah. You know, it, it, it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier on immediately and, and the fact that we're being told, I mean, we, we did see videos of him being picked up and put in an airplane to God knows where. But I'm, I'm just wondering why Hadi Sirika hasn't been, you know, faced with the same treatment. This Nigeria Air conversation has been going on for, if I remember correctly, the first time this thing surfaced, only 2016 or 2018, I, I, I can't remember. I remember, I remember, I remember, <laughs> I remember doing an analysis back then. Or I, I, I remember have, you know, having conversations with people and seeing so much information when they were telling us tales back then that they had gone to the Dubai Air Show. Now, Dubai Air Show is one of the biggest air shows that you, that you have. That's where all the major um, aircraft manufacturers come to display their, their current um, products. It was the Fambo Air Show. Fambo, thank, thank you. I, I know it was, it was it was either the Dubai Air Show or the Fambo. I can't remember. There was one. The whole thing was ridiculous. It was so a farce. It was a farce. And, and so, so back then, I mean, we saw all the lies that they were telling and they were telling us this thing was going to take off and then it disappeared again until dying moments of the, of the regime we're told that, oh, everything is in place. They actually brought in a, an aircraft, you know, made noise and blah, blah, blah. Then, and particularly, I remember it was David Oden that did this, <laughs> started tracking the airplane. I found out that it was an Ethiopian airline aircraft that had been painted over and, you know, they showed all the tracking information and everything, just proving that it was just for sure. It was obviously... This Hadi Sirika guy had probably taken money to launch an airline and obviously wanted to have something in place publicly just in case a new government comes in and starts going through the books and says that ah, you collected too many billions of naira, what happened? And then you can always point and say, ah, no, but we started now. You guys didn't continue. That for me is where this is at. But this was... This was a fraud of, you know, incredible proportions. This is just ridiculous. To try and hoodwink a country of 200 million people with, a, with an aircraft, no, no institutional infrastructure, no, no company set in place. We had, we then have had the so-called MD of the Nigeria Air, Captain Olumide or whatever his name is, come to the National Assembly and actually, you know, you know put all the entire scheme to shame. So for me, the number one culprit here is Hadi Sirika, who, who did this whole um, um, charade. But again, he had somebody who was answering to who enabled him, which is Muhammad Buhari. I mean, this, this Muhammad Buhari guy has to, you know, he has to pay for some of these things that he did. And of course, it's wishful thinking to expect that Buhari will do something, will do anything to him. But I mean, he needs to be, if we can't get him locked up or charged to court or anything, we need to make sure that his, his legacy gets stamped with these things. But most importantly, 
at least the ones we can catch, like how they say that they should be caught and, and dealt with. So if if Tinubu won't do it, I mean we're waiting for a tribunal. Maybe the tribunal will give us what we want and and we can we can have a president that can come in and actually do it. Thank you, Phoenix. But you do know that Hadisirika is Buhari's nephew. If he likes, he should be Buhari's son. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> he's a criminal. He's a fraudster. Uh, how can you do that? Did anybody beg you to give us airline? That's, that's the thing. If you surveyed most Nigerians, at least right-thinking Nigerians, I don't think having a Nigerian airline was top of mind for anybody. Who sent him message? This is incredible. I like, I like the way you inserted the caveat, right-thinking Nigerians. No, it's true because, I mean, <laughs> I live in a country where people are, are doing very funny things. <laughs> Let me bring you Cheta at this point. Cheta, the, the, the question that other people have, have raised is a number of what we would say prominent and formerly well-respected people seem to be supportive of this new airline. Uh, for example, people pulled up old tweets of uh, Tolu Gunlesi, who was a spokesman to the president. Uh, Tolu was wearing a face cap, seeming to celebrate the airline. There was another activist, some Bring Back Our Girls activist, who even brought Jesus into the matter and said Nigeria Air will work in the name of Jesus. So can you explain to us, Cheta, how come members of what we will call the intellectual class seem to support this idea and now the whole thing has just collapsed in a pile of controversy? No, I can't explain. And I think that this is a very unfair question because I don't know what is going on in, in, in these people's minds. Um, uh, uh, Tulu Gunlesi, for example, used to work at 234 Next. He was my colleague there. And um, I think that I'm, I'm not going to be lying when I say we all agree that a national career was a bad idea back then. Um, uh, Nicholas Ibikwe, who was also a colleague at 234 Next, did a series of um, investigative journalists as to why, uh, investigative pieces as to why Nigeria Airways failed. Um, so I think it's for us to talk about why a flag carrier is a very bad idea. Um, and then for specifically for a country like Nigeria, one of the reasons Nigeria Airways and then Virgin Nigeria and then Air Nigeria failed was that institutional anyhowness that we have in Nigeria. So Nigeria Airways, you have, and this is just one of the reasons. So. Nigeria Airways back then, you had a lot of people, a lot of Nigerian big men who would fly for free, first class, with their babes, and nothing will happen, and they will not pay. An airline cannot carry such a burden for such a long time. Um, when Richard Branson was pulling out uh, Virgin Atlantic from the deal with the Nigerian government for Virgin Nigeria, he very clearly stated that the Nigerian people are good people, are great people. They, they um, Those that they hired did their best, but that the Nigerian government was terrible. He stated this is, this is on record. So it is that institutional thing that will always mitigate against a national flag carrier. But then there's another thing, or there are two other things 
that will mitigate against it that people seem to be glossing over. So let's start with the smaller one in my view, the one that can be changed because this is something that affects all airlines in Nigeria, taxis. Most components of our air tickets in Nigeria, if you look at compare say flying from, from where you live, Gege, um, to Nigeria, uh, to Lagos, and then compare with flying in an equidistant manner to Accra, the flights to Lagos is far more expensive because our taxes are more. There are so many things that are added on and then passed on to the consumer. This means that increasingly flights to and from Nigeria are getting more and more empty. That's losses. Nominally, the Nigerian aviation sector provides an environment that failure is likely. This is before you factor in the fact that the airline business in itself is already something that is very, very prone to failure any small shifts and an airline has failed. It's one of the reasons why you see all sorts of measures always going on routinely within the US aviation sector. There's a serious argument that supporting private carriers in Nigeria will be more cost effective. So for example, reduce all those uh, uh, parking tax, fuel tax, this, this, this. There's also a serious argument that half of the airports that we have are not necessary. Now, if you look, if you zoom out and look at the African landscape, African flag carriers generally are having a bad time of it. Perhaps with the exception of Ethiopian air, most of them are in trouble. Kenyan air is just struggling, but the, the Kenyan government subsidizes it a lot and it, it, so it's chugging along. South African airlines is almost dead. Royal Air Maroc is, is, a, is a, a Mulwe operating service. Egypt Air is, Rwanda Air is being pushed. So why would Nigeria want to, looking at that environment, want to chuck our head inside that kind of thing? Going globally, flag carriers, perhaps with the exception of the Gulf carriers, Emirates, Etihad, uh, Qatar, then Cathay Pacific and Turkish Airlines, you find that almost all the profitable airlines in the world are privately owned. These five airlines that I just mentioned, and then add Ethiopia Air, that are doing relatively well and are flag carriers, there is a strategic reason why they are doing well and they are positioned the way they are positioned. It is the one thing that you cannot change. Geography. So, what most of the Gulf Airlines do and what Ethiopia Airlines does is they position themselves as a sort of midpoint between the East and the West, which are the two large economic clusters on the planet. So if you want to fly from London to Perth in Australia, it's a very long flight. It's almost 23 hours. You are hardly going to get anybody that will fly for, that, would, that would fly you um, that distance. So what you do is you break it off. You fly, let's say you choose Turkish Airlines. You fly four hours to um, to uh, to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul you can you can rest layover for eight hours. Istanbul, the Atatürk Airport in Istanbul has very nice facilities where you can rest and relax properly, and then you can now fly a long haul flight, twelve hours from there to Perth. Same thing with Dubai. Same thing with Doha. Same thing with Abu Dhabi. You cannot, even same thing with Addis Ababa. 
You can't do that with Lagos. Nobody, Lagos is an is um th there's an economic term that I that I'm forgetting, but Lagos is a place that receives more. We've not even done the hard work of turning Lagos into a tourist hub that people will want to come come to and then spend some time before moving on. And then you want to fly carrier. Who is going to come? Who is going to fly? I have been to airports in at least 22, uh, 22 countries. And I can tell you that, that our own is one of the, probably ours, um, ours is probably one, is one of the very few that our, the line where our people are coming in is always more than the line where foreigners are, are visiting, foreign, uh, foreigners visiting. It tells you a lot. People are not coming to Nigeria. So why do you want to have a flag carrier? What, what economic sense does it make? No, thank you, Sheta, for your analysis. Obviously, I, I, the only thing I must, I, I don't quite understand what you meant by people flying with their babes. Is that their children or were they flying with? Girlfriends, you want me to stay, stay specifically? <laughs> when a Nigerian big man has a small girl that's in university and he's, he's an aristo, one of the things that he used to do is he will fly her to London or Paris for shopping. He will put her in Nigeria Airways. This used to happen a lot in the 1980s. They are documented stories. They will take small girls that cannot afford it, put them, fly them to London, and take them to Oxford Street to shop. It is, yeah. is, is, is uh, this thing. And then, do we want to talk about? Do you want us to talk about the activities that they will engage in in, the, in hotels in the evening? Yes, thank you for providing. You, you need me to spell everything out for you. Uh, thank you for providing your detailed explanation of the issues. <laughs> but uh our time is up. So first of all, thank you, Felix, for co-hosting. Thank you, Chacha. As ever, your contributions are always very insightful and, and useful to our listeners. And last but not least, I say thank you to our listeners for being loyal and helpful. But until the same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thanks for having me. Everybody have a nice week. Um, first, thing, first thing tomorrow, I'll go and look for work. Good luck. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Jetha, for joining us again. Uh, thanks, listeners. Have a great week, everyone.